Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open those up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians 6, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 20 this morning, as John mentioned. Last week, we saw that Paul was addressing an issue within the church where uh, the members of the church were suing other members of the church in order to solve disputes. And Paul was shocked by this. We see that in the language that he used. It was fairly strong language. In verse 1, he said, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it? Uh, to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And Paul says it's a, it's a shameful practice for brothers and sisters in Christ to take one another before pagan judges uh, in order to se- settle their problems. Uh, he, he thinks this should be something that the church is more than capable of handling. First, it bothered Paul that the Corinthians were sa- essentially saying that the church wasn't capable It doesn't have the authority. It doesn't have the power to handle this. Maybe it doesn't have the wisdom. He couldn't believe that no one among the Corinthian church was deemed wise enough to arbitrate between two people having a spat. Second, it bothered Paul that the Corinthians, uh, the Christians in Corinth would rather take their brothers and sisters in Christ to court rather than take a loss on something minor. They would rather drag this out, put them before a a pagan judge, uh, run them through the mud, rather than take a loss. These are, uh, these are not serious crimes that, that we're talking about. I hope you remember last week I said that this is not you know, murder, it's not rape, it's not anything like that. This would be property disputes or someone paying, not paying for a service that was provided or someone's dog killing someone's chicken. Right? It would be things like that. So not major issues. Instead of taking these issues before the church, the people of the church were choosing to take the issues before the people who have no stake whatsoever in the kingdom of God. Paul refers to them as the unrighteous in verse 1. And in verse 9, Paul states that there is no inheritance coming to those who are separated from God by their sins. And then he makes a short list of sins that cause that separation. And to be clear, that list, it's far from exhaustive. But what is included there uh, are people who are sexually immoral, idolaters, Adulterers, people who engage in homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, and people who are verbally abusive and swindlers. Again, just a short list. It does not encompass everything. But Paul is saying that none of these people who are consistently engaging in this are going to enter into God's kingdom. Right? Paul points out in verse 11 that the Corinthian church used to be like this, but something changed. There's a difference in their life than the lives of these people that Paul has just mentioned. He says that they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So by coming to saving faith in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, the Corinthian church now possess a righteousness that is not their own. They have the righteousness of Christ. Followers of Jesus are given this righteousness through our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's not something that we have earned. It's not something that we have cultivated. It's something that has been given to us freely by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So he took our sin, and in exchange, he hands us his righteousness. And this changes our standing before God. It changes our 
relationship with the world around us and we are called out of these sinful lifestyles and we're called into a life that images Christ. This means that we are to think about and act towards all the things the way that Christ would think and act towards them. That should be a constant refrain in our mind. Like I know it's cliche now, but you remember the what would Jesus do bracelets? Right? Yeah, it's kind of laughable now because it got so overused, but that's truly what we should do with our life. We should think every single moment, how would Jesus handle the situation that I find myself in? How should I think about this in, in such a way that would bring Christ honor and glory in how I'm processing it? The Corinthian church... They're, they're struggling to live this out due to their spiritual immaturity. Right? Paul addressed all of this in the first four chapters. He's saying that all these problems that are coming up is because you are looking at this through the wisdom of the world instead of looking at it through the wisdom of Christ. And they don't understand what it means to follow Christ and how they live their day-to-day lives. And this is leading to significant issues within the church. And one of the issues that the church is facing is a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is this concept that considers the freedom that our relationship with Christ provides for us, and it shows up in several different ways in the Bible. I want to talk about four of them. The first is our relationship with Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin. And so we are liberated from having to endure God's wrath. So we are set free from God's wrath. The second is that our relationship with Christ sets us free from the power of sin in our life. Before we came to faith in Christ, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. We are chained to it. There's no getting away from it. But yet now, through our relationship with Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we now have power over sin. We do not have to bend the knee to sin. We have been set free from that. The third aspect of Christian liberty is our relationship with Christ also sets us free from the ceremonial law that we find running throughout the Old Testament. The ceremonial law was necessary in the Old Testament to obtain right standing before God. So when you would sin in a certain way, you would have to act out a sacrifice in a certain way that would coincide with how God said you need to atone for this sin. Christ's sacrifice on the cross sets us free from the ceremonial law. It was a one-and-done sacrifice. We no longer have to sacrifice a goat or a chicken or whatever it is that you can afford on the altar to atone for your sin. Jesus took care of that once and for all at the cross. And so as Christians, we are free from the ceremonial law. And finally, Christian liberty can mean that Christians are free to engage in activities that are not expressly forbidden in the Bible. Right? This could apply to things like famously drinking alcohol. Right? A lot of people debate, can Christians drink alcohol? Well, there's no restriction in the Bible against drinking alcohol. Sometimes it's encouraged for certain ailments even. But we're told that we cannot get drunk. Right? Drunkenness is a sin. Drinking alcohol is not labeled as a sin. So do we have freedom to drink, consume alcohol or not? Right? Christian liberty says yes. We do have that freedom because it's not expressly uh, restricted. How about gambling? How about watching R-rated movies? What about wearing whatever you want to church? Can you wear jeans and a t-shirt to church or do you have to wear a three-piece suit? Christian Liberty says that we can wear whatever we want as long as it's not inappropriate. What about wearing makeup and jewelry 
What about getting a tattoo? All of these things are things that have been debated by the church for, for a long time. But Christian liberty says that we're free to do any of these things as long as they are not leading into sin and as long as they're not causing a brother or sister to stumble through our actions. Christian liberty, however, does not mean that we're free to do whatever we please. Whenever we please, however we please. That's not how this works. The, the thought, though, is that some people think that because Christ has already paid for our sin, now we can sin all we want. I mentioned this when we were talking about 1 Corinthians 5, right, where they're engaging in some sexual activity that is inappropriate even to the pagans, and yet they're thinking that it's fine because they have freedom in Christ. They're actually celebrating that the freedom that they have in Christ. And to have this understanding is a misunderstanding of what Christian freedom is. You have no concept of Christian liberty if you think that you can sin however you want, whenever you want, and that everything is okay because Christ has already atoned for all your sin. Anyone with that understanding of our freedom either has no relationship with Christ at all, or they're so immature in their faith that they act like little children rather than mature believers. And this was Paul's accusation against the Corinthians. He says, you're acting like children. You should be eating the meat from the word, and yet you're still sipping from the bottle. And Paul is going to address this issue, this misunderstanding of Christian liberty, uh, in the closing verses of chapter 6, where it appears that people in the church are, are engaging in sexual activity with prostitutes, and they feel okay about those actions because they have freedom in Christ. The freedom in Christ does not set us free from God's expectations for us. It does not set us free from the expectation that sex is going to be confined between a marital relationship between a man and a woman. Freedom in Christ does not change that at all. And because of the misunderstanding of Christian liberty that's occurring in the church, Paul's going to share seven reasons with them about why their sexual activity with prostitutes is not allowed under the concept of freedom in Christ. And so I want to read that again, and then I'm going to briefly hit each one of those seven points that he makes up. So let's ch check that out again. He says there, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the spirit is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. And so what we're seeing here at the beginning of this passage is Paul is quoting the Corinthians. We don't know how he has come across these quotes, but when you see, what you see there is in quotation marks, it says everything is permissible. I said that's their understanding. That's where, that's where their understanding stops. I can do whatever I want. 
And Paul begins in, with his first point. He says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Now, Christians must still abide by the moral law. And it's not that they will be condemned if they don't. It's because those laws are there for a reason. Right? The ceremonial law goes away with the sacrifice of Christ. The moral law is there forever. And the reason that it's there forever is because it's for our good. The moral law are things that go against, if we sin against God in the moral laws, because we've gone against his nature and his character in doing those things. So sex is not constrained to the marital relationship because God is a cosmic killjoy. Right? He's, not, he's not sitting there going, well, that looks like fun. You shouldn't do that. Right? It's constrained to marriage because it's the best place to engage in that type of relationship. There are so many downfalls to a relationship, the sexual relationship that occurs outside of marriage. I mean, let's just run a list. You've got unwanted pregnancy. You've got disease. You have rape. You have insecurity. You have comparison where you uh, compare one partner to another partner. You have uncommitted emotional connection. But there's no such thing as casual sex. You can't do that. Right? There's... Statistically, there are greater chances of divorce between two people that are in a committed relationship but yet have not been married. There is a greater chance of them getting a divorce because they had sexual relations before marriage than those who have waited until marriage. You, you have all this nonsense that the world tries to, to put out there. In, like, how do you know if you're sexually compatible? How do you know if... You guys like the same things. How do you know if this is going to work or not? Well, statistically, if you try to pursue that information, you're much more likely to get a divorce than you would if you just waited until marriage to have that sexual relationship. And God has put this in place because he knows what happens to our heart when we engage in that kind of relationship with someone. It, there's a closeness, that, a bond that forms whether you mean for it to or not. He said, yeah, you, you might not get condemned for this in Christ. right? You're no longer facing God's wrath because of this. But... It's still not a good idea for you to engage in this for a, a lot more reasons other than just the fact that it puts you at odds with God. It creates havoc in the world. It creates havoc in your heart. It's not good for you. And so, yes, everything might be permissible, but it's not beneficial for you. The second thing he says there is everything is permissible. So he quotes it again. He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. There is... Something in sexual sin that is addictive. Now, we, we may not have a, a whole lot of issues with prostitution in our area, but pornography is rampant across the world. And studies have shown that there is something that changes in your mind when you engage in sexual activity, any kind of sexual immorality. There's a change in your mind that is somewhat permanent. Now, porn use rewrites the brain. It changes the way that you look at someone else. They did, they did an example where they were studying the male brain and there were different parts of the mind that lit up when they showed them promiscuous pictures of women 
versus women wearing regular street clothes. Different parts of their brain would flash in their tests. And the part of the brain that flashed when they saw the promiscuous uh, pictures was the part that also flashes with tool use. So your mind flashes the same, like for me personally, a brand new table saw and a promiscuous picture, the same part of your brain lights up because you think, I would really like to use that. It's It's not about an emotional connection. It's about something to be used. That becomes addictive. There was one... One pastor I heard preaching about this, he, he quoted a study, and I, I couldn't find it. Uh, but one of the psychologists in the world that studied this said that it is significantly harder for someone who is addicted to porn to get away from their addiction than it would be for someone who is addicted to cocaine to get away from theirs. The problem is because eventually the cocaine leaves your system. Eventually, you can put enough distance between your drug use and what happens to your body when you're on it, then it gets to the point where it's not an issue anymore. But with porn, that stays in your mind forever. Like There's no deleting that from what, what happens in your brain. You can recall that in a moment. Sometimes you don't even want to recall it, then it just pops into your brain. And modern psychology is showing that people who are con- consistently consuming pornography are ruining their lives. They're ruining their relationships. They're ruining their marriage. Because this is taking over their life. They're being mastered by this sin. And we need to root this out of our life. We need to not even have an association with it. Jesus talks about this. If you want to find out how seriously Jesus takes this kind of sin, listen to his suggestion on steps to take to avoid sin in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. There he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. To be clear, though, Christ is not literally telling us to maim ourselves. And he's not saying that we should literally pluck out our eye or we should literally take off our hand. The reason why he's literally not saying that is because it doesn't help. Right, the issue is the heart. It's not the eye, it's not the hand. The issue is the heart. And if you cut off your hands, you still have heart issues. If you pluck out your eye, you still have heart issues. But these are the, the levels that Jesus is saying you need to be willing to do these things because otherwise, if you cling to these, these sins, it's going to drag you into hell. You've got to root that out of your life so that it doesn't master you. Jesus is graphically telling us that we should avoid sin at all costs. We need to be willing to to take extreme steps to avoid falling into these things. The third thing that Paul addresses here is he says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, one thing that the commentaries mentioned about this particular one is they don't know exactly where the quotation marks are supposed to go. Right, so he's talking food is for the stomach and, and the stomach for food is certainly a quote from the Corinthians, but he, we're not sure if it's supposed to go all the way to the end where it says, and God will do away with both of them. Because when Jesus was resurrected, he ate. But they're under the impression that food is for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God's getting rid of both. So they have this misconception that the body is going to go away and it's never going to come back. And so in their mind, they can do whatever they want with the body because who cares? Right? There's no, there's no ultimate eternal value in it. They don't think the body matters because when they, are, when they die and when they go to heaven, they're with the Lord and they're separate from the body, and that's true. But they're not thinking about the resurrection. Paul here says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit of all resurrections. Every single person will resurrect from the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And then we will go and we will face judgment. But we are going to exist eternally bodily. And so Paul here is saying you, they have a misunderstanding of the body. The body was made so that we could bring honor and glory to God in all that we do. Right? It's not going away. And so we need to be mindful of that. We need to treat our bodies well. We don't need to sin against our bodies. It's a misunderstanding of, of what eternity is going to look like. Fourth there, he says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should, so should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So what these Christians are doing as they are engaging in this sexual relationship with the prostitutes is they're entering into a one flesh union with the prostitute. Genesis 2, 24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Right? When we come to faith in Christ... We are made one with Christ. And so these Christians are essentially, they're bringing Christ into these sexual relationships with these prostitutes. There's no, there's no separating that. You can't have casual, meaningless sex. Because in every sexual occurrence, it might seem weird to the married people out there, but Jesus is present and in, and in some way is participating in that sexual relationship. And if we have professed faith in Christ and we are in, engaging in that, whether that be pornography, whether that be an adulterous relationship, whether that be sex with a prostitute is happening here, we are engaging Christ in each of those actions because we are made one with Christ in our faith. Paul says to flee sexual immorality. This is the fifth thing that he, he, he speaks to. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Flee. Right? We see a great example of this uh, as Joseph in Genesis flees from Potiphar's wife. Joseph gets sold into slavery, gets brought into the Egyptian's house, 
And his wife thinks he's cute. And she is constantly trying to get him to sleep with her. And he does everything in his power to avoid it. And she is constantly putting herself in a position to where she can entice him. And we see that in a, a moment where this happens, where the master is away, this woman calls Joseph into the house. She grabs a hold of his cloak and tries to get him to sleep with her, and he runs. He ditches the cloak and runs out of the house. And this is what we are called to do. We're to flee sexual immorality. Honoring God in that situation cost him greatly. He spent years in prison. After being willing to do what was right, not engage in the, the sinful activity, he was willing to do what was right, and for that he gets thrown into prison for years. But he did not want to sin against God. Paul says we need to flee. Like we need to be mindful of the consequences of these actions. And we need to run. Paul says that every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but those who sin sexually sins against his own body. And this is a little confusing, right? Because you would think that many other sins are in the body, right? If you think about gluttony, for example, is a sin in the body. Self-harm is a, is a sin in the body. Drunkenness are, sins, are all sins that happen to the body. And one of the commentaries that I studied this week, uh, author Brendan Byrne explains it this way. The immoral person perverts precisely that faculty within himself that is meant to be the instrument of the most intimate bodily communication between persons. He sins against his unique power of bodily communication and in this sense sins at a particular way against his own body. All other sins are in this respect by comparison outside of the body with body having in this verse the strong sexual overtones that appear to cling to it throughout the passage as a whole. No other sin engages one's power of bodily personal communication in precisely so intimate in a way. And I know that's a mouthful, but essentially what he's saying here is that sexual sin impacts the body in a way that is totally different than other types of sin. It, it, it impacts your mind in a completely different way. It impacts your soul in a completely different way. There's some of these sins where, that you can take back. Gluttony, for example. Right? You can eat in a gluttonous way for a long time, and if you choose to turn from that, you can lose the weight. Drunkenness. There are things that can, you can do to make decisive changes, and the consequences of the sin might well be changeable, but sexual sin doesn't work that way. Once you've given a part of yourself away, you can never get it back. And every sexual relationship that we engage in, we're giving a part of ourselves to. And you can never get it back. You can never fully remove the images from your brain. You can never fully remove how it felt from your brain. And you will take that into every other relationship that you ever have from that point forward. Paul then goes on to say, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Your body, as the believer, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't go to a temple. This place here, it's beautiful, but it's not, it's not a temple. Right? This is not the church. This is the building that the church goes to to worship. You are, are the church. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. 
And so think about those activities that people engage in that are sexually immoral. Now think about doing that here, right here. Think about bringing a prostitute into this building and sleeping with her on this stage. Think about going to the back and putting pornography on the computer and broadcasting it on this screen. Are, are any of you recoiling from that, the idea of that? Does that seem repulsive to you? Well, this place isn't a temple. We are the temple. This should have the same impact in our minds and our hearts. When we think about doing that here, we should think the exact same thing about doing that out there in the privacy of our home or in some trashy motel. That should be what registers in our heart. This is not the temple. This place burns down today. The church at Oak Grove could meet that afternoon. We are the temple. We are engaging in these activities in and with the temple of God. Paul says, remember that. And lastly, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Salvation is free for us. Completely free gift. Everything that needed to be done was done, and it was handed to us. And all we have to do is have the faith to pick it up. And in that moment, the righteousness of Christ is ours, and he takes the punishment for our sin. But it wasn't free. It's free for us. It cost Christ everything. It cost him his glory. It cost him his respect. It cost him everything that he deserved. He steps out of glory into this cold and difficult and dark world, experiences all the difficulties that we experience, got mistreated, got beaten, gets murdered, also that he could pay for our the drink the cup of wrath that we deserve. He took everything that God should pour out on us on himself. And he says, I did this so you don't have to. That should change the way we think about sin. It should change the, our willingness to enter into it because everything that was, you're right, it, it's paid for. There is freedom in Christ. You can do all of those sins and you're not going to face one ounce of God's judgment because of what Christ did for you. But could you imagine just casually spitting on such a, such a gift? Just disregarding it as though it wasn't important, as though it didn't matter. This is what happens when we start looking at grace as something that is cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there's a quote about this on the back of your worship guide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote about cheap grace, and it's long, but it's really good, so follow with me. He says there, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. 
The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were brought, bought at a price, and what has, God, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. The salvation that we are offered in Christ costs more than we will ever fully understand. And it was a price that Christ was willing to pay so that we wouldn't have to. And anytime we willingly walk into sin, knowing that we're going to be forgiven for it so we can just do it and it'll be okay, cheapens his sacrifice on our behalf. Paul is looking to the Corinthian church and he's saying, don't you understand what this cost for you to have the freedom that you're so willingly walking in? Don't you know what this is doing to your life? Sexual immorality is not, it's not something that we should casually toy with. It has dramatic changes on our life. It has dramatic changes in the lives of those who we are engaging in this with. The world is going to look at us and they're going to tell us that you guys are restrictive. This is old, old thinking and you really need to step into the sexual revolution so that you can truly be free. But what they don't understand is what they're entering into is slavery. They're entering into destruction. They're entering into rejection of God in that. So as the church, it must be that we have a different mindset about sex. It is not confined to the marriage bed of a man and a woman for flippant reasons. God understands that that is the best place for us to engage in that type of activity. And we can't just casually look at it as something that doesn't matter. The world wants us to believe that. And we must push back against that. And we must not engage in our freedom in Christ, to engage in that, thinking that it will be okay in the end. Let's pray together. (coughs) 
Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that it speaks to every aspect of life. Or sometimes these types of sermons, conversations can, can be a little uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray that we would be willing to take a long, hard look at our life and see where we're struggling with sexual immorality. I pray that we would take a long, hard look at our life and see where we are taking advantage of the grace that we are given through the cross of Christ. I pray that we wouldn't have the mindset of the Corinthian church that just thinks that it doesn't matter. It's all been paid for. I pray that we would have a heart that longs to glorify you in all that we think, say, and do. I pray that it would change us into people who are willing to do whatever is necessary to root this sin out of our life. Maybe that means that we have to change our jobs. Maybe it means that we have to change where we live. Maybe it means that we have to uh, turn off the internet at our house. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that we would have a heart that desires to, to bring you honor and glory, and in that we're willing to do whatever is necessary to flee from sin, to flee from sexual immorality. But I ask all this in your son's precious holy name. Amen.